Well, we've had a great series of sermons already this year, haven't we? We've looked at lament, we've looked at the subject of heaven, we've dove into Daniel, and now for July we thought we'd do something a little different. We're going to just tell you stories this month. How does that sound? Uh, we thought we might just change the pace up a little bit. If you notice, there's no manuscript today. We just want you to listen. The message will be online later if you want to go back and, and look up stuff so you don't have to write everything down today. But we're going to do a series of five of the parables of Jesus. Now, why would we want to do parables? Well, parables are made-up stories that open a window into a spiritual truth. They're made-up stories that open a window into a spiritual truth. And the spiritual truth we're going to be looking at this whole month is the kingdom of God, as Eric mentioned earlier. Now, we know that with travel schedules and vacations, you may not be able to be here every week, but the more of these sermons you will listen to, the more aspects of this kingdom you'll be able to understand. And we'd encourage you, if you are traveling, to, to watch the live stream and, and, and follow along through as we look at these five parables this month. And some of you right now are watching online while you're on vacation, so welcome to College Park Church. The word parable comes from two Greek words, para and balo. Para means alongside, and balo means to throw. Now, you may have heard, if you're a math fan, of a parabola, a parabola. What it means is it's a curve that one side exactly, precisely mirrors the other side. And so what parables do is they bring something that we know from the concrete world, and then they parallel that exactly with the truth from the spiritual world in an effort to help us understand that spiritual truth. A parable puts a commonplace reality alongside a spiritual truth to help us understand that truth. Now, I know you're waiting for your story. It'll come in just a minute. But we need to take just a few minutes before we jump into our story to understand parables, and then this will help us all month long in our study. How do parables work? They do three things. First of all, they are mirrors. They help us see ourselves. They're a very earthy teaching style, one that the Jews were quite familiar with. In fact, do you remember how the prophet Nathan got David to understand how grievous his sin with Bathsheba was? He didn't just walk up, up to him and said, you're a sinner, you need to repent. He told him a story. And David was drawn into that story. And when David got angry at the rich man for killing the poor man's lamb, then all Nathan had to do was point at him and say, you are that man. And David got it. See, the story becomes a mirror in which self-recognition produces self-understanding. So to read parables properly is to see ourselves, and a good one will leave us with no room for escape. James Montgomery Boyce said, parables break through mere words and make us ask whether there has indeed been any difference in our lives. And no one was better at breaking through pretense to get to reality than Jesus, and that's what the parables do. Cromwell once said to his troops, we speak things. And by that he meant that he's not just talking about abstract ideas, he's talking about concrete realities, and the Jewish mind loved that. Now, Greeks were a little bit different. They loved argument for the sake of argument. And they didn't really care if anybody won or if there was any practical application to the argument. 
But Jews were very different. They wanted something that meant something, that had an action plan that was relevant to their daily lives, and I suspect that you and I are probably more like that. It's harder for us to think in abstract terms than in concrete picture realities, and that's why Jesus used parables. William Barclay said this about parables, there are certain stories which are not so much the heritage of the scholar and the material of the theologian as the possession of every man. So if you're just a normal Christian today, these stories are for you. Secondly, parables become windows. They let us look into the heart and mind of God. See, a parable always points toward God, towards the kingdom of heaven, and helps us through comparing it with something that we do understand to understand something that is harder for us to get a hold of. Jesus knew that as human beings, we were deeply rooted in this world, and it's hard for us to understand things we can't see. So he takes things that we can see, uses them to explain that invisible world, the kingdom of God, and the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Parables move us seamlessly, gently, but irresistibly towards the unknown realm. But finally, parables are also veils. What do I mean by that? Well, when Jesus had given a parable, the parable of the soils, the disciples were confused. This was a new method for them. And so they asked Jesus, why do you speak to people in parables? Now, what would you have expected Jesus to say in answer to that question? so that they can understand what I'm talking about. But actually, Jesus says exactly the opposite. He says in Matthew 13, to you, to the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. You see, Jesus used the symbolism of parables to hide the truth. You might think that's very strange, and it is in a way, but Jesus was always speaking to a mixed audience. There were two kinds of people, as there are in this room today. There are those people who are earnestly, sincerely seeking God and want to change to please Him, and there are people who are set in their ways and are just critics and they never want to change. And so what a parable does, for those who are ready to change, who want to learn, they open up a window into the kingdom of God and a mirror into our own lives. But for those who are insistent that they've already got things figured out, the parable, the symbolism remains opaque, and they cannot understand it, and they cannot see through it. So parables both hide the truth and reveal it. And I hope for you this month, they will reveal truth. You see, there is gold here if we want it. But it's gold from a different kingdom. It's gold of a different sort. And it's far more valuable than the gold of this world. Jesus, right after he said that verse I just quoted, also said this, Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Do you understand what was happening? After thousands of years, people had been longing to understand the kingdom of God, and, and now God himself has come among his people, and he is explaining to them his kingdom that people for centuries had longed to know, 
and people still close their eyes and their ears to it. Let us not be like that. Let us today understand that God has gold for us here in this kingdom because Jesus wants to take us through the wardrobe. You remember the story, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? In this old house in England, Lucy walks through a wardrobe and goes back through some coats and clothes and goes back through another row of clothes and then she emerges into trees and snow and a completely different world that was very much as real and yet even better than the world that she inhabited. She longed to live in Narnia all of her life. And what Jesus is doing now in these parables is he's taking us through the wardrobe into this kingdom of God that mysteriously intersects with our own earthly world until that day that we will go and be in that kingdom forever that we've just learned about in our series on heaven. So let's walk through it and see if we can learn and embrace the kingdom of God. Now, how many of you grew up in a church where you, you had a time in the service where the kids came forward and heard a children's story? Any of you? Now, this is kind of old school, but guess what? We're actually going to do that today, right now. My wife is going to read a very interesting story to you. And so, kids, I'd like you to come up and just sit right here. There's plenty of room for all of you to come on up right now. And we're going to read a story to you. Yet, don't, we're not going to bite. It's all right. We, we want kids to come up and we're going to tell you a story and then I have a little gift for one of you at the end of the story time. So I want you to listen real carefully. Thanks, girls. Come on up. Yeah, I know there's ones way back there. It's going to take just beautiful. Thanks for coming up. Just go ahead and sit right on the ground here. Now, thank you, kids. That's great. Now, you kids are going to have to help us today because let me tell you something. Big people get things confused. They make things really complicated. And we need you to help us understand the sermon today. All right, so listen carefully to the story. And then I'm going to ask a couple of questions afterwards. So pay attention. The person who gets the right answer or the best answer, guess what I'm going to give you? I'm going to give you 50,000. Okay? <laughs> you have to wait and see. Listen to the story and answer the questions and help the big people in the room understand what this story is all about. So my wife, Marty, is going to now tell you the story of a man who had a lot of dollars but not very many cents. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to tell you a story about a very rich man. A long time ago, there was in a land far away, there lived a rich man who did nothing all day but to think and to worry, to hope and to plan some way of becoming a wealthier man. From his house to his fields, each day he would walk to look at his crops, every leaf, every stalk. Then he climbed to the top of his great storage bin where he kept all his grain and he'd sit there and grin. He watched as his slaves worked hard in the sun to put grain in the bin, loading ton after ton. As he carefully counted each load as they came, he would think of his riches, his wealth, and his fame. Few hungry birds in the sky overhead saw the big bin of grain, and downward they sped. Oh, how happy they were. 
for at last they could eat. They landed and started to dine on the wheat. But when the rich man saw them eating his grain, he screamed and he kicked and he waved his big cane. You can't have what's mine. Get away from my bin or I'll hit you so hard your heads all will spin. He swung with such force that he fell from the ladder right into the bin and that made him matter. With all of his wriggling and squirming about, some of his grain poured out to the ground. My grain, oh my grain, he snorted and sputtered. It can't be wasted. It can't, he muttered. And then in a frenzy, he looked all about to just see just how much of his grain had spilled out. A poor hungry man had started to pick up the wheat for his wife and six children had nothing to eat. Stop it, you thief, cried the rich man alarmed. And the poor man went running for fear he'd be harmed. The rich man saw all of the wheat that was spilt. New place for grain would have to be built. I'll tear down the old one, he said gleefully, and build bigger bins. How grand they will be. His slaves worked hard, his slaves worked long to make the new bins big and strong. The master from his platform high surveyed their work with watchful eye. And when the job was finally done, the night had come. Gone was the sun. He hurried home all full of pride, as full as his bins with the grain inside. He went to his room and he looked in the mirror. He talked to himself and he saw a good hearer. I really am a remarkable guy. My riches will last till the day I die. I'll wear fine clothes that are made of gold thread with gems on my belt on my hands, on my head. I'll eat and I'll drink, I'll dance and I'll play and plan bigger things for the rest of the day. With a yawn and a stretch, he turned to his bed. I'll think of my future tomorrow, he said. Then looking once more at each wonderful bin, he drew up the covers and tucked himself in. The lamps on the bins shone down through the night to warn the rich man if thieves came in sight. His treasure of grain was part of his plan to be each day a much richer man. Someday, he said, I'll start anew and live as God would like me to. But first things first, myself I'll please and live my life in wealth and ease. But that very night, he died in his sleep with no one to mourn him and no one to weep. This man had been selfish with all of his wheat. He had offered no grain for the hungry to eat. How silly the rich, greedy man was, you say? Yes, he was silly. And right to this day, because he was selfish and heartless and cruel, he's not called the rich man. He's called the rich fool. Wow.
Thank you guys for listening so well. Now, I just have a few quick questions on that story. You ready? What was the guy's plan with all of the stuff that he was getting? Yes. Okay, he was going to sell it all and be rich. What else was he going to do? Yeah. He was going to keep it safe. All right. He was going to build some new barns so he could fit it all in, right? Question number two. You guys all ready? Okay, what's the answer? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was mean. <laughs> okay. What was it? He wanted to hide it. Yeah, he wanted to keep it all for himself. Now, the next question is, when the poor man came to get some of his wheat, what did the man say to the poor man? Yes, in the back. Go away. Go away. You're a thief. This is my stuff. Exactly. Now, the last and most important question. Ready for it? Looks like you're all ready for it already. I, <laughs> aren't kids amazing? They don't know the proverb that says you should listen to a question before you answer it. <laughs> Of such is the kingdom of God. <laughs> All right, so this is the 50,000 question. Okay, I need a good answer. What was the point of this story? Who's got a good answer? Right there. He said, teach people not to be selfish. Is that the right answer? It is. Very good. We should not be selfish. So, young man, you're going to get 50000 but you're going to have to come up a little bit later in the sermon, and I'll give you, because I need my 50000 for the sermon. What's your name? Jason? Jace. All right. Well, you come up in the sermon. How far back are you sitting? Too far back? <laughs> All right. Well, Jace, when we get to that point, you come up, and I'm going to give you 50000 All right. Well, thank you very much, kids, for coming and we do have a worksheet for you so grab one of these and when the sermon gets boring in a few minutes you can just fill this out and have some fun you can even share it with your parents if you want I think, I think we'll need more next hour but I, I... well that's one way to make a big church feel small All right. Well, thank you, kids, for coming up. Uh, do we really need to do anything else? <laughs> it's kind of like if you take the thing apart, you're going to ruin it, right? We should not be selfish with our stuff. That is a good summary. Well, that was a little bit of an elaboration on the story. We want to get back into the actual words of Scripture, so take your Bibles, if you haven't yet, and, and turn to Luke chapter 12. And we're going to look at this story briefly. First of all, the setting, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him. How big was the crowd? Look back at verse 1 of chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. This was a crowd of thousands of people, more than we have in this room this morning. And Jesus was teaching them some very important things about what it meant to follow God, but one dude was absolutely not paying any attention at all. He had a one-track mind. He wormed his way to the front of the crowd, and he sticks his hand up in Jesus' face, and he interrupts Jesus with his own agenda. And he says, Jesus, tell my brother to give me my stuff. That's basically what verse 13 says. Now, what was going on here? Apparently, the father had died. 
This guy was probably the younger son. We're not sure what the issue was because Jewish law was clear. The older son got two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger sons divided the remaining one-third. Now, there were courts and judges if the man had a legitimate beef, but the very asking of the question tipped Jesus off that there was something in this man's heart that was not right. Jesus was not interested in his dispute. He said, verse 14, but he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? I've just come to teach the law. But Jesus sensed an evil lurking in this man's heart. And he wanted now to expose it and to teach him as well as the crowd of thousands. How would that have been for an embarrassing moment? What is really in our hearts? And he begins by saying in verse 15, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard. The word there is a word used of a military soldier who's on sentry duty. And it's a picture of an encampment that an enemy is trying to get into. And the soldiers need to mount a 24-hour vigil defending their camp from the attack of the enemy. We need to be on guard against a danger, an enemy that wants to get into our camp. And the thing about this enemy is that it doesn't just come in the front gate. It, it slips in underground. It comes in in the water and in the air, and we, we can hardly even notice it. And suddenly we're drinking and breathing and living this enemy. And that's why Jesus uses a present imperative We need constant vigilance against this enemy. And what is the enemy? Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Covetousness is the same as greed, and it means very simply always wanting more stuff. Do you have any idea what that is like? If you're a human being, you understand what greed is like. It stems from a word meaning hunger. It's used of a lion in Psalm 17 who's always wanting more. And you see, as humans, we have appetites that are never satisfied. And it is this enemy that God now wants to warn us against and root out of our lives. Notice he says, be on your guard against all covetousness. He means every kind of covetousness, and there are lots of varieties of it. It disguises itself in so many ways as it worms its way into our lives and it coils itself around our hearts, and pretty soon it begins to choke out our very life. And I wonder if we need this warning as American Christians. This weekend, we're celebrating the founding of our nation. I think inarguably the most prosperous nation, not only on the face of the earth today, but in the history of the world. And while we rejoice in God's blessings to us as a nation, I think the day before on Sunday would be a good day for us to think about, so what has prosperity done to our hearts? And has greed begun to run amok in our lives? Well, I'd like you to consider some data about Americans. Don't take this personally, uh, but it probably does apply to some of us since we're Americans. Um, There are 300,000 items in the average American home. 
These are 10 quick data points. The average size of the American home has nearly tripled since 50 years ago. And still 10% of us rent storage place in off-site storage facilities. There are 50,000 of those off-site storage facilities, more than our high schools in this nation. In fact, of people that have two-car garages, 25% of people don't have room to park their cars inside them. Anybody in the 25%? You don't have to confess your sins publicly just yet. But, and, and only 32% have room for only one vehicle. So that means that over half of us are using our garages to store our 300,000 items that we have in our homes. U.S. children make up 3.7% of children on the planet, but they have 47% of all the toys in children's books. The average American throws away 65 pounds of clothing per year. Uh, Americans spend more on shoes, jewelry, and watches than on higher education. Shopping malls outnumber high schools. And teenage girls say, 93% of teenage girls say that their favorite pastime is shopping. Women will spend more than eight years of their life shopping. And when I read that to my wife the other day, she was not amused. <laughs> she said, well, what about that bigger TV that you want to get? When we got a 42-inch screen TV, I was just in seventh heaven. It was amazing. But now you know what? It looks kind of small. Because <laughs> our son has a 56-inch. And the games just look so much better. You see what's happening? We just, it never stops, does it? No matter what our particular weaknesses are. Over the course of our lifetime, we will spend a total of 3,680 hours searching for misplaced items. We have so much stuff, we can't even keep track of it. <laughs> so this is a sad commentary on our life. But I wanted to show you visually what this looks like uh, from the, the study of the material world, which is a photojournalism essay. And they had people around the world pull everything from their houses outside of their house so we could see. So here's a yurt in Mongolia with everything that our friends there own. This is a scene from Japan. This is from the country of Mali. And then, you ready for the Texas one? <laughs> Texas does things big, big size, so much stuff they needed the entire cul-de-sac to show everything that Americans have. You see, we've created a new disease. It's called affluenza. And it's defined as a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. Where else would a teenager who was driving DUI be able to have his attorney argue for leniency based on the fact that he was under the influence of affluenza? And now Ethan Couch has his own Wikipedia page. Now, all of this research was from a website called becomingminimalist.com. And what they say is this, the research is confirming our observation. We own too much stuff. And guess what their conclusion was? It is robbing us of life. Really? I think I've heard those words before. In fact, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said the exact same thing. He says in verse 15, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
We live over here trying to accumulate things and we don't find life there. Jesus has a better way for us. And so he tells a story of another kingdom, another way, another set of values. So let's look quickly at the story. You've heard it twice already, so we don't need to review the details. But we need to take a look at this rich man. Verse 16, and he told them a parable, saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Three things about this rich man. First, he was an egotist. Verses 16 to 18, a person who was excessively self-absorbed. He was already rich. He was a good farmer, a good manager. But verse 16 indicates that even then it was God's blessing because it was the land that produced his wealth for him, and he didn't acknowledge that. But look where his focus is. Ten times in verses 17 to 19a, the words me, myself, or I appear. That's all he can think about. I, I, me, me, myself. He was the most important person in his world. In fact, he was the only person in his world. An author who wrote of a self-centered lady said this about Edith. She said, Edith lived in a very small world bounded on the north and south and east and west by Edith. And that's what this rich man was like. This is an egotist at the center of the universe me in the middle with all of our stuff around circling us. This is what the rich man was like. In fact, we've become an, a generation now, the me, me, me generation. Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes summarized this so well when he complained about humanity. He said people are so self-centered. The world would be a better place if people would stop thinking about themselves and focus on others for a change. And Hobbes said, well, I wonder who that might be. And Calvin said, well, me, of course. Everyone should focus more on me. And that's what an egotist does. Now, his plan was, because he had all of this produce, that he needed to build bigger barns to put it in. And that's not a bad plan, really, if you have lots of stuff. You need somewhere to store it, right? Or what else could you do with the stuff? <laughs> You could give it away. But he never thought of that. He never thought of the second greatest commandment that said, love your neighbor as yourself. He had zero awareness, let alone concern for the people around him. Secondly, he was a hedonist, verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Why does he want all this stuff? Because he wants to chill. He, he wants to stuff. He wants to pound. And he wants to party. That's what this man wants to do for many, many years. He wants his barns to make sure that for as long as he lives, he has everything that his body could possibly want. This sentiment of hedonism is perfectly captured in the lyrics of a song by a rapper that I had never heard of until I did some research on the internet, g Easy. He has a song called Me, Myself, and I. And I, I don't recommend that you... He's actually going to be at Klipsch Theater here in a couple of weeks. He's coming to Indiana. <laughs> so this is not an endorsement for g Easy, but, but you need to hear these lyrics because this was not just the rich fool back then. It is mankind today. 
He said, oh, it's just me, myself, and I, solo ride until I die, because I got me for life. Oh, I don't need a hand to hold. I just need space to do me, give the world what they're trying to see. A Stella Maxwell right beside of me, a Ferrari, I'm buying three, a closet of St. Laurent, get what I want when I want, because this hunger is driving me, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. It, it doesn't really work. <laughs> An old white guy just can't do that very well. <laughs> but, but I want you to listen to the next line. You see, the, the thing he didn't know is how much time he had to enjoy what he had earned. The next line goes, if time is money, I need a loan. But regardless, I'll always keep keeping on. Do you see his mistake? It was the same as the rich fools. He was a hedonist living for pleasure, but what he did not realize is that even though he had plenty of stuff, he did not have plenty of time. Even though he had planned for the future, he didn't plan far enough out. And so God says, tonight your soul is required of you. And that brings us to the third characteristic of this rich fool. He is not just an egotist and not just a hedonist. He is an atheist, verse 20. But God said to him, fool. And that's how you should read that verse. Fool. Psalm 14, 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. This man didn't not only know the second commandment, he didn't have any idea of the first, which says, the most important thing we can do is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our strength and our mind. This man, whatever his philosophical inclinations about the existence of God or not may have been, lived a life practically that demonstrated he did not even believe in God whatsoever. In fact, Jesus had just taught that commandment two chapters earlier, but he was probably not at that sermon because he was off arguing with his brother about the inheritance. So Jesus decides now is the time to show this man the other kingdom because his is going to end right now. He was given no time to amend his ways. This night your soul will be required of you. This is a commercial term used of a loan, and the lender can call it in at any time, and that's what our lives are. They're alone from God, and he can call it back whenever he wants. And the question is, whose is this stuff going to be? You, fool, have worked hard for nothing. You see, because the other kingdom is of a very different quality than this one. You can't take any of the stuff from this world into the next unless you send it ahead. You've heard that you've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. It's all going to stay behind and, as Eric said, eventually just get burned up. A millionaire's accountant was once asked how much his employer left behind, and his answer was, everything, because that's what happens when we die. Now, greed is a subject that you can study more about in the Bible. In fact, if you have a small group that's meeting in the next week or two, study Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Gehazi in 2 Kings 5, or Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. But here's what I'd like you to understand. Why does Jesus warn so strongly against greed? 
Well, it's not because he doesn't love us. It's not because he's mean. It's because he wants what is best for us. You see, greed never satisfies. If I get a 56-inch TV tomorrow, guess what's going to come out next week? See, it's never enough. It's like drinking seawater. You drink more and more of it, thinking you'll satisfy yourself, and you just continue to get more and more thirsty. And Jesus doesn't want us to live that way. Instead, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, she said, if you keep drinking this water, you're going to always be thirsty. But, but I have water to give to you that if you drink of that, you will never be thirsty again. Jesus wants to take our eyes off of the stuff of this world and onto him and his kingdom and his values so that we can find true and lasting joy and delight. Well, Jesus now makes his point in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Go on in your egotism, your hedonism, your atheism if you insist, but one day perhaps sooner than later, God will literally take your breath away. And then what will you have? Well, what should the rich man have done? Jesus just says one very small phrase here. He said he should have been rich towards God. And then he, he stops his story. See, that's how parables work. He just lays it out there. He doesn't argue he doesn't invite discussion. He just wants to let that sink in. And so if you're paying attention this morning, if you really want to follow Jesus, instead of greed, what should you have in your heart? What should I? We should be rich towards God. And, and how do we do that? Well, he goes on in verse 22, and he said to his disciples, he explains what it means to be rich towards God, but we're almost out of time. So you're going to have to study that on your own. But in a nutshell, here's what Jesus says. He says, if you take care of my stuff, I'll take care of your stuff. If you focus on the invisible kingdom, I'm going to provide everything you need in this world that you can see and taste and touch and feel. And to help you do that, here's what you need to do. He says, you need to get rid of your stuff. Verse 33 Put your treasure in heaven. You need to sell your stuff. You see, the problem with this man is that he had invested in the wrong portfolio. I mentioned something about 50,000 earlier. Here is 50,000. So, Jace, if you're still here, you can come up and get this. Uh, this is 50,000 manat from Azerbaijan. And uh, I... I asked, way to go, buddy, coming a long way. Uh, I showed this to my wife, and I said, do you know how much a manat is worth? Well, right now, a manat is worth a little more than a dollar. So Marty looked at this and said, well, why are we living in the house we're living in? You have stacks of these. Well, I'm, I'm afraid to tell you that something happened. Here you go. There's your 50,000. Um, you know what the government did? They changed the currency. So that piece of paper, Jace, is not actually worth the paper it's printed on, but <laughs> it makes a cool thing to show your friends at school. So take it and tell them you got 50,000. Thank you, buddy. Good job. Was that, 
Is that kind of a dirty trick to pull on a kid? <laughs> well, maybe it'll help at least him remember, and maybe some of us. You see, what we're doing is we're investing in Confederate money when we build our barns. You know what the Confederacy did? During the Civil War, they, they printed their own currency. And, and this is amazing. Here's what it said on this currency. Six months after the ratification of a treaty of peace between the Confederate States and the United States, the Confederate States of America will pay to the bearer on demand whatever's written on that note. So this was $1,000. Well, what was the problem with that scheme? One kingdom collapsed and disappeared. And this note wasn't worth the paper that it was written on. And if you had invested in Confederate money, as soon as the Confederacy lost, you had nothing. And you would have been called a fool. And that's what God wants us to see. You see, this is so confusing for us because we love the glitter and the bling and the shine. But it's all going away. As soon as this kingdom is over and his kingdom comes, it's done and gone. And the only thing we can do is sell it and invest it in God's kingdom and his ministry, and then it will be reserved for us in heaven for all of eternity. What do we do with our stuff? It's dangerous. It's a trap. We need to sell it and get rid of it so that it doesn't capture our souls. Well, I'm sure I've raised a lot more questions than I've answered. For instance, should we save? And if so, how much? Well, I looked in the New Testament and the only thing I could find about saving was don't. Uh, seriously, Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Invest in the coming kingdom. This is the hottest stock tip you will ever find. This is the best example of legitimate insider trading you will ever see. And you have a chance to be a part of it. Take the wealth that God has given you, even if in your mind it is small, and don't buy stuff with it. Invest it in God's kingdom. Be rich towards God. Enjoy Him. And then your heart will follow and you will love the kingdom of God more than anything else. Or have things become your God? Do you think more about your home, your car, your vacation, your bank account, your clothes or your investments than you do about God? Is generosity a habit with you? God has been so rich towards us, has he not? He has brought us into this kingdom through his son. Let's be rich back. Let's pry our grubby little fingers off of his gifts, the toys of this world that are here today and gone tomorrow. And let's embrace him and his kingdom with all that we are and all that we have. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the master teacher. You're a skillful surgeon. And you have indeed put your finger on something that each one of us understands only too well. The lure of the stuff of this world. We want something better. Something more fulfilling and something lasting. And you've given that to us in yourself. Help us to value you and your kingdom and to use whatever resources you give us to advance that kingdom. 
on earth until the day that you come back. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.